There's plenty to celebrate in March and craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iheart radio's iheart country radio discover more shows and movies for free cnn underscore's guide to sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever all right let's face it most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point and there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights that's why the cnn underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber visit underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep hi i'm antonia blythe and this is 20 questions on deadline joining me today is allison Bree. Welcome, Allison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Allison. Thank you. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Long Shot is a production of McClatchy Studios and iHeartRadio. Previously on Return Man. Yeah, it kind of hit concussion or things like that. You put ice on it, go back on the field. He hits it deep into the corner to Duncan. This time Duncan will come out with it. Since 1927, we've known that people exposed to many concussions can lead them to be demented, just like someone with Alzheimer's disease, but at a much younger age. He was very free with his money. He made like a hundred thousand dollars, yeah. which was a lot of money in 1970. Jim had some problems, but I didn't remember what they were, and I did not get involved. An unnatural quiet hangs over South Carolina State College today, a day after state highway patrolmen opened fire on rampaging students. By the time Jim moved back to his hometown, Lancaster and South Carolina were struggling with their own transitions. Three students are dead. It has been called one of the ugliest racial confrontations in the South in modern times. Bloody civil rights battles like this one at South Carolina State University were becoming somewhat less common. NAACP leaders demanded that steps be taken immediately to put a stop to what they see as open police brutality. But if the mechanics of inequality were changing, the mindset behind it was stubbornly entrenched. We had desegregation in 1907 with the schools. Floyd White has lived in Lancaster for almost 60 years. He was one of Jim's coaches at Bar Street High, the black high school in town. 69, we started putting the black teachers in these schools. And then the next year, we just fully integrated. Yeah. A few years before, 
lawmakers in Columbia, South Carolina, raised a Confederate flag over the Capitol Dome, a defiant symbol in the face of the civil rights movement. There in small-town Lancaster, the most vivid example of change was the school integration Floyd White lived through as a coach, when Jim's alma mater once again changed its name to Lancaster High School Campus 2. Well, see, when we integrated, the high school, Lancaster High School, became Lancaster High School number one, and they were the juniors and seniors. Right. Ball Street became Lancaster High School Campus 2, the ninth graders and 10th graders. Mm-hmm. What was it like, though? I mean, it had to be tense. It was well, no tense. No? It was good? No tense. No tense. Why do you think that was? Because we, at the black school, taught our children what's going to be and how it's going to be. Okay. We kept it in front of them, kept it in front of them, kept it in front of them, kept it in front of them. And they accepted He told me integration went more smoothly in Lancaster, not because of less racism there, but because they did a better job of teaching the black children to expect it. I give you an instance there, the Lancaster. Kids went to class and uh, had that flag hanging up. The rebel, uh, I call it the rebel flag, you know. The Confederate flag. Confederate yeah. flag up over there. You know what they did? They laughed and went on the class. Really? Mm-hmm. So they saw the Confederate flag and they just, yes, sir. They just yes, sir. ignored it? Yes, sir. Wow. But they always kind of band together. They knew unity and strength, so they kept together. Kind of stay together. Yeah. I read a letter to the editor from around that time, written by a Lancaster resident to the Charlotte Observer, the letter writer was upset the newspaper had described the Ku Klux Klan as a hate group. He insisted, quote, Your writings on the Klan and others who are aware of basic racial differences show a bias on your part to the extent of irresponsible journalism. That's the environment Jim Crash landed back into in the fall of 1972. Coming down in front of the goalpost at the two-yard line to Duncan up to the 15. He was a one-time Super Bowl hero and a black man with inward demons, and an outward love of women, nightlife, and audacious cars. A 99-yard kickoff return to start the second half, and the Baltimore Colts... He was practically a six-foot-two embodiment of the change that frightened so many in Lancaster. In Baltimore, those things helped make him a celebrity. Deep into the corner, Duncan will come out with it. But in Lancaster, they might have made him a target. Look out! Duncan at the Kansas City 49-yard line. From the Herald, McClatchy Studios, and iHeartRadio, this is Return Man. I'm Brett McCormick, and this is Part 4, October 20th, 1972. That summer of 72, the plan was that Jim would go to Saints training camp in New Orleans. Alice wasn't getting along with Jim's mother, so she would leave the house in Lancaster and temporarily move back in with her parents in Greenville. He was going to be with the Saints. Alice declined to lend her voice to this podcast, but we spoke for nearly four hours. Were you, like, thinking about moving to New Orleans, or...? She planned to join Jim in New Orleans as soon as training camp ended. But almost as soon as Jim arrived, people there could tell something was wrong. I'm a doctor, I'm an athletic trainer, but, you know, you can tell when things are bothering people, and Jim seemed to be Dean Kleinschmidt was a 25-year-old athletic trainer for the Saints. He went on to work 40 years in the NFL and was inducted into the National Athletic Trainers Hall of Fame. Kleinschmidt said Jim arrived to the Saints out of shape and under a dark cloud. He was not a troublemaker. He was not a rabble rouser. He was not that at all. I think he was more to himself 
I don't remember every time a player smiled, but I don't remember him being the fun-loving jokester. I don't remember that at all. You know, I remember him being quiet and burdened. Jim could put on a brave face when he had to, like when he told the local Times-Picayune newspaper, quote, I like New Orleans a lot, enough to want to make it my home. Maybe my bad luck is behind me now. But inside the locker room, Jim couldn't hide his troubles. Players can do I mean, they can have family problems. They can have whatever and still play. But I remember Jim would have gotten the Super Bowl check, right? Bonus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And he made some kind of statement about, I just never realized that having so much money would create so many problems. And hip on a great play by Jim Duncan. He's made two good tackles coming up from the cornerback position. Saints management wondered if a blow to the head had affected Jim mentally. So they took what was, at the time, an unusual step of sending the NFL player to a psychiatrist named Dr. William Sorum. Today, a psychiatrist telling reporters about a patient's mental health would be a flagrant violation of federal privacy law. But those laws were only enacted in 1996. So at least legally, Sorum could speak freely about his semi-famous patient. His expert opinion, which he told to the Philadelphia Inquirer at the time, Duncan was depressed, but football was good therapy. He said, quote, By the time I saw him, he seemed to be on the road to recovery. Had he continued to play football, I think he would have worked things out and made a complete recovery. Jim continued his playing slump in New Orleans and the Saints waived him before the season began. For football fans, 1972 stands out for a different reason. The Miami Dolphins going undefeated, becoming one of the most celebrated teams in sports history. It turns out, Jim caught a glimpse of that himself. After he was waived by the Saints, Jim was invited to Miami by head coach Don Shula, who had originally helped draft Jim in 1968 when he coached the Baltimore Colts. But Jim was just as out of sorts in Miami. Shula told the New York Times in 1972, quote, We were hoping he'd be a backup defensive back and run back kickoffs for us, but he wasn't covering well, and he'd lost some of his speed. One of the best moments of Jim's life had occurred there in Miami's Orange Bowl, where the Colts won Super Bowl V. And the kick is good! The Colts lead 16-13! Less than two years later, he sat on the bench in that stadium watching the Dolphins play their final preseason game of 72. He was cut three days later. The first thing I did ask with the Saints was, did you do a physical? I'm not sure that he was there long enough. The first time Alice heard about any of her husband's time in Miami was when I told her. So after he got cut by the Saints, September 7th or something like that, he signed with the Dolphins for like a few days, which would have been Shula was down there. But he was only with them very briefly, and then he got cut again, and then he was back in Lancaster. So, yeah, I mean, it's just a, it's a lot. You're probably like, what are you doing here? Those Dolphins finished that season laying claim to being the greatest team ever. Jim came back to Lancaster. His football career was over. We'll be back in a moment. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex-
National Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds, it was shocking. I have to know what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great Thank conversation. You. And we're back on Dealing Together, where we help good people who fell for bad deals. First caller? I had to buy three identical sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller, what's your deal? I paid for 20 tanning sessions, but had to use them in a month. Now I'm orange. Ooh, you got burned. Next caller. I traded in my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24+. Plus. Hmm, how's that bad? I got to choose from their best plans. So what went wrong? Nothing went wrong. And you're calling to... To request a song? You want a song. Of course. My choice is yours. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Jim arrived back to the house on Isom Street in September of 1972. A Lancaster phone book from that year indicates he was employed at a local dry cleaner, though it's unclear how long he worked there or what kind of money he made. It's one of the many things about the following few weeks that are tough to get a firm handle on. Do you think something had been going badly for him? Do you think he would have told you? Or would he be the kind that would, like, shield you from it? Kind of shield me from it. Yeah, I can see that. Jim's brother Elroy was living in nearby Charlotte by the time Jim returned home to Lancaster. Because he didn't want me to see him in any light other than a great light, you know. Because there's nothing bad that I could tell you about, but other than he just loved women. A few people I spoke with said Jim liked to smoke marijuana, but that was hardly unusual in the 70s especially considering the professional environment he came from. Forget drug testing, NFL team doctors had fishing tackle boxes full of painkillers and other medications they gave out to help players on the field. He smoked a little bit. That could be a way that you're dealing with whatever's happening. He smoked happened. a little bit, but uh, yeah. back then, you know, like they party heavy and they stay out late at night, so they need some type of pill to keep them going. Yeah. He had a medicine cabinet you wouldn't believe, you know, and it was all doctor prescribed. Mm-hmm. Because the doctors back then, they took care of their athletes. Bob Grant, who played with Jim in Baltimore, told me those pills may have been a gateway to something more serious. 
Speedy developed a, a problem addiction to heroin. And the Baltimore Colts did uh, send them to uh, one of the rehab clinics. Now, I never actually saw him do it, but I had heard from our old teammates and from ownership, you know, that Speedy has this problem. Even with his football career hanging by a thread, Jim couldn't stay clean. I tried to keep an eye on him. One afternoon, I guess it just got to him. And uh, he says, I got to go. I, I tried to say, no, Speedy, uh, you, you stay here. You know, what are you going to make? No, 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 no. I, I've got to go and I've got to see some people. He went and, uh, you know, he scored. You know, broke my heart. I think it kind of broke his heart, too, because he was embarrassed. I didn't try to chastise him or say anything like you to it. I think the one thing that I might have said is, okay, you've got that out of your system. Let's start over again. None of Jim's NFL medical records are available. Neither the New Orleans Saints nor the Indianapolis Colts, the franchise that now holds Baltimore Colts records, had anything in their archives about him. Players and executives I spoke with said they had no indication Jim was using hard drugs. And Grant said he didn't initially pick up on it either. But not because Jim hit it, just because drug use of some sort was so common in an NFL locker room. For players to perform in games, we had doctors who were giving speed and the other uppers, and they were there for the asking. You just told the doctor what you wanted, and the doctor gave those to you. And uh, when someone was in like an altered state, I think that people knew. So at the risk of offending some people, I don't care who it was, player, coach, staff, or anyone who says that they didn't know it, bullshit. Yes, they did. If a drug habit followed Jim back home to Lancaster, Alice said she never saw it. And that makes sense because I don't think it would be something that he was proud of or anything like that. But then again, she told me she's come to understand how much she didn't know about her former husband. And I think that that was something that was kept from everybody. In Lancaster, it's clear Jim grew increasingly disconnected from his life of just a few months earlier. He doesn't seem to have been training or staying in shape in case an NFL team called. People there at the time mostly remember seeing him drinking at a downtown pool hall. I saw him one day. My house was here. His house was here. And... Going toward the high school, we had to go through the bushes and stuff. Floyd White was one of Jim's high school coaches in Lancaster. He lived near Jim's family on Isom Street, where seeing Jim's brothers and sisters walk by was just part of daily life. And I attempted to talk to him, just see where, where he was. And he was strung out. He was bad strung out. He always called me Coach or Coach White. He didn't even know who I was. It's evident no one in Lancaster completely grasped the severity of Jim's issues, personal, professional, financial, mental, or otherwise. Even Alice, who represented the closest thing Jim had to personal stability, was still back in Greenville, living with her parents. I thought that was interesting because I don't think anybody was really aware of what was going on with him. Some news reports later suggested she and Jim were in the midst of a divorce, but Alice firmly disputes that. However, she did tell me that by October of 72, Jim's behavior was making her uneasy and at times even made her feel unsafe. 
you know, it, it appeared that there was like a pattern that was kind of starting to develop, which had worried you. That's scary. Yeah, I mean, uh, that you were worried for him, but also that it, you were kind of like wanted to be careful in the situations you were in with him. On Friday, October 13th of that year, Jim drove to Greenville to see her. You saw you saw him the week before he passed away. How how long had he been there? Was that like a short visit, or had he been there for a week or something? Or Jim stayed one night and left for Lancaster early the next day. That Saturday morning was the last time she saw him alive. After three years of investigating Jim's life and interviewing dozens of people, here's what we know about Friday, October 20th, 1972. Or what we know with as much certainty as anyone can. It was a cold morning in Lancaster, just creeping into the 30s. The sort of cold that catches the South by surprise. Jim was living in the Isom Street house he'd bought for his family, and he'd spent at least some of the previous night there. Jim's mother, Ellery, later said that he spent that evening playing with his 18-month-old brother, Moral Unitas Clyburn. Alice told me that by that morning, she hadn't talked to Jim in a week. Jim's mother later told reporters about one of her last conversations with Jim, which scared her. Ellery said Jim confided in her that an unnamed person in town had been threatening him. Ellery died years ago, so it's impossible to know for sure what was said between the two. Perhaps she misremembered the conversation, or Jim might have been confused, or even hallucinating. But Bob Grant, Jim's best friend in Baltimore, mentioned another aspect of Jim's life that could be relevant. His infidelity. A bachelorhood he says Jim never quite gave up, and a colorblind love life that stood out in a southern mill town struggling with basic integration. He was warned by the police and stopped a number of times because he was driving a big car thinking he and I had talked about it. And I don't think that anybody else in Lancaster had a Lincoln Mark III, white or black, and his was canary yellow, so there was no way that you could miss that. But what was he warned about? Well, when Speedy returned to Lancaster after New Orleans, uh, you know, even before he was dating a few of the local white girls, I don't think that it was anything serious or anything like that. Yeah, he was a hometown hero you know, as a ball player. But even then, there were certain lines that you kind of didn't cross. You know, he was still a colored man back there. Today, it may not make that much difference, but at that time, it was something that some people were obviously threatened by. The other thing was I didn't want to surprise you, that I didn't want you to read it and just be like, what? You know. Alice told me she's aware of claims about Jim's unfaithfulness, which continued until the day he died. During her time with Jim, there was a paternity suit brought against him by another woman in nearby Winsboro, South Carolina. Elroy had told me that uh, Jim had a, had a kid with a woman in Winsboro, South Carolina. Alice told me she was aware of the allegation and that Jim and his mother had even gone to court about it one day, there at the same Lancaster courthouse where he and Alice had married. I wasn't able to find any official records of the case or its resolution, but Alice told me firmly that the child was not Jim's. Oh, wow. Okay. Maybe, uh, 
a claim that was made. Okay. That Friday, October 20th, we know Jim drove his mother to the ABC liquor store where she worked. Ellery later told the New York Times, quote, He didn't act depressed or anything that morning. He told me he was heading for home, and that's the last time that I saw him. After dropping her off, Jim reportedly stopped at two different gas stations. At one, he asked for an ice scraper. At the other, some antifreeze. When he died, we were living on the same street. Glenn Crawford grew up down the street from Jim. As kids, they played Sandlot football together. I saw him that morning. Really? Yeah. He passed my house, go to his house, the way we were situated there. And he looked, well, that he looked just in a, in a daze, like driving when he passed me. And I hollered at him, and he kept going. But that's, we didn't have a conversation. Yeah. But he normally would have said something to you, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he was like in a daze. It's not clear exactly what time that was. But Jim was next seen for sure around 11 a.m. He parked his yellow convertible downtown outside the offices for the Lancaster News, the only newspaper in town owned by Springs Mills. Jim walked across the street into a local pawn shop, which sold everything from diamonds to firearms. As Alice understands it, Jim was there to buy a gun. Huh. Okay. There's a lot of evidence that points to the fact that he was struggling with a lot of things. Like, it seems to me there was a lot on his mind. Like, he just was troubled. But Jim was only in the pawn shop briefly. Alice said Jim was told that he needed additional paperwork for that kind of purchase, and that he would have to get it from the police station. It's not clear what sort of paperwork might have been needed, or why Jim had to go to the police station to get it. I couldn't independently confirm the story Alice was told, but it's the closest thing we have to an answer for why Jim was in the police station at all. We'll be right back. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscored.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billy's vocals. It was automatic art. You know, I had to, like, choose a more challenging route than just, like, da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying? Like, it could have been, like, easier. And a lot of people have asked me, like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and, like, so simple? And what else was it going to... Like, that's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. And we're back on Dealing Together, where we help good people who fell for bad deals. First caller? 
I had to buy three identical sweaters to get the fourth free. Ooh, you got fleeced. Next caller, what's your deal? I paid for 20 tanning sessions, but had to use them in a month. Now I'm orange. Ooh, you got burned. Next caller. I traded in my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24+. Plus. Hmm, how's that bad? I got to choose from their best plans. So, what went wrong? Oh, nothing went wrong. And you're calling to... To request a song? You want a song. Of course. My choice is yours. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. We're going to turn now to the questions surrounding the suicide of NFL great Junior Seau. This shocking suicide just eight months ago. A gunshot to the chest. Some speculating he knew his brain needed to be preserved for examination. Alice told me Jim might have wanted a gun as protection from the person he said was threatening him. The football world has been rocked this week by the sad death of a former star. Or... Safety Dave Durson took his own life. He could have wanted a gun for other reasons. The 50-year-old killed himself with a gunshot to the chest. Durson asked his brain be examined for chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE. Jim hadn't seen his wife in a week. There's every reason to believe that he was depressed. And many of his behaviors that friends and family found strange could have been symptoms of CTE, caused by head trauma from his football career. He's tagged, and I mean rather rudely, by Andre Waters. There's another tragic outcome the general public often links with CTE. November 20th, 2006, Andre Waters, 46 years old, decided to put a gun to his head. But Jeff Viktorov cautioned that the connection between CTE and suicide isn't as clear-cut. There are very few cases that have legitimate comparisons between brain and behavior. Viktorov is the neurologist at the University of Southern California. He wrote the textbook on concussions and traumatic encephalopathy. Ordinarily, if we do something called clinical pathological correlation, you study a person during their life, wait for them to die, and then cut their brain and look at it. At that point, you can sort of say, aha, this behavior seems to be due to this brain change. Viktorov has examined dozens of cases of former athletes who were diagnosed with CTE after their deaths. Deep into the corner, Duncan will come out with it. He found psychiatric problems were pretty common, but suicidal behavior was not. Unfortunately, almost no one is studying these guys during their life, doing all the tests they need to, then waiting for them to die, and after that, looking to see what kind of brain changes explain what kind of behavior. That work started in Alzheimer's disease in 1907, and it has not even begun in CT. Two large blocks away from the pawn shop is the Lancaster Police Station, which sat on the west side of Main Street, directly next to the courthouse where Jim and Alice married. That two-story police station has since been demolished. But at the time, the front door of the white brick building opened into a small reception area, which was covered in dark wood paneling. Inside, the doorway faced a long reception desk running parallel to the back wall. On that back wall was the seal for the city of Lancaster, 
next to framed 8x10 photos of the department's former police chiefs. Every one of them was white, as was the vast majority of the police department at the time. Just a few steps inside the front door, a chest-high counter separated visitors from the receptionist and from the police dispatcher who sat next to her. Photos from the time show a few gumball machines on the far right end of that counter. Past them was a short hallway that led to the administrative offices, including for the Lancaster police chief, a 36-year-old Marine veteran from Savannah, Georgia, named Larry Lauer. By that October, Lauer had been in Lancaster about seven months. Hi, my name is uh, Brett McCormick. I work at a newspaper in South Carolina. I reached Lauer at his home in Savannah, but he declined to let us use his voice in this podcast. And come across your name and wondered, have, have you got some time to talk on the phone? He seemed a bit caught off guard. Uh, it was about the NFL player that committed suicide in Lancaster. But I think he mostly wanted to know why a reporter was calling about an incident from nearly half a century ago. It, w- it was 1972. It has been a long time. He told me, quote, there's nothing I can recall. Thank you. And that was it. Also there in the reception area that morning was a 52-year-old lieutenant named Russell Henson. His sturdy build and a shock of red hair made him stick out in the crowd. Colleagues just called him Red. That Friday morning in 1972, the sidearm on Henson's right hip was a Smith & Wesson 38 caliber Chief Special Revolver. Two things were unusual about that. First, he wore his own personal holster that day, not the department's standard issue holster. The leather holster he wore had a snap-down strap across the top to keep a gun from falling out, and was more typical of plainclothes detectives than a uniformed lieutenant. The second unusual thing was that officers didn't normally wear their guns inside the building. For example, Chief Lauer reportedly removed his gun as soon as he arrived and stored it in his filing cabinet. But Henson was wearing his gun around 11.20 a.m. that morning when Jim found himself in the reception area of the police station. I mean, the story comes up all the time with my name being Moral, right. you know, and so, right. you know, telling my oldest brother played with the Colts, he's deceased, you know. Oh, what happened? We know that a short time later, a bullet from Henson's gun ripped through Jim's skull and ricocheted off the wood paneling nearby. The story was that my brother took a gun off of a police officer and shot himself in the head. The former football player's 200-pound frame collapsed to the ground in the small hallway to the right of the counter. He was dead before the ambulance arrived. Anything's possible, but again, no one's going to talk about it. Never has this been something that anybody remotely seen interested in talking about. Jim Duncan was 26 years old. For nearly 50 years, that's about all we've known for sure. Until now. And on part five of Return Man. Everybody's like, wait a minute, how did that happen? Suicide with a policeman's gun. Okay. Back in the day, at a smaller agency that may not have been leading the charge of police reform and professionalization, uh, a lot of shit happened that never got reported. Historically, coroners would keep all their records in their home. Yeah. Unfortunately, the year that you're looking for, along with many other years, is missing. Just okay. totally missing. And just to be clear, so you, you would have been sitting at the desk and he just walked right by you? 
I'm Brett McCormick. Return Man is a production of The Herald, McClatchy Studios, and iHeartRadio. It's produced by Matt Walsh, Kara Tabor, Kata Stevens, Rachel Wise, and Davin Coburn. The executive producer for iHeartRadio is Sean Titone. For lots more on this story, go to heraldonline.com slash returnman. If you have any additional information about Jim Duncan's life or death, email us at returnman at heraldonline.com. To continue supporting this kind of work, visit heraldonline.com slash podcasts and consider a digital subscription. And for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. Three out of four U.S. adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans. Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford. Our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health. But by itself, it doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full person. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Allison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on the Deadline. Thank you again, Allison. Thank you. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable.